Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, June 7th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This live stream will be posted also as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. Uh, I just want to apologize up front. I'm uh, recovering from a cold. I've kind of lost my voice a little, but we'll uh, just press ahead and see how this goes. Uh, in these weekly live streams, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news. And if you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time. I'll try to keep an eye on it and answer questions as they come up. So here's what I plan to cover today. The big news this week is the decision on Monday in one of the term's most highly anticipated cases, Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Now, this case was uh, expected to be a showdown between anti-discrimination law and freedom of speech and uh, anti-discrimination law on one hand and freedom of speech and religious freedom of religious exercise on the other hand. Um, but the decision we actually got from the court was a whole lot less. The court uh, more or less sidestepped the big free speech and free exercise issues and decided the case under a different, uh, much narrower religious freedom claim, left the big questions open for a future case. But the various opinions um, in this case do give us some strong indications of where lines will ultimately be drawn in the future. So I'll talk about this case quite a bit more uh, later in this episode. Along with Masterpiece, uh, on Monday, the court also issued opinions in three other argued cases, and I'll discuss each of these. And then there are a few other developments this week. And, and so before we get to the uh, new opinions and argued cases, let's uh, dive in and talk about some of the other news and uh, developments in other cases. Now, um, just as a very, very quick update on the uh RBG movie, that's the uh, the documentary film about Ruth Bader Ginsburg that is now in theaters. The uh, release of that movie has now expanded to over 400 screens. It brought in another million dollars this past weekend, bringing its total box office, office revenue uh, upwards of uh, $8 million. Uh, you know, obviously this is not uh, superhero money, but it's an impressive showing for a documentary. This is It's currently listed as the 27th highest grossing documentary film ever. And that may rise even a little higher before it's done. Uh, so just an uh, uh, interesting quick update on, uh, on, on that movie. Moving on to the cases. Um, along with the opinions that were issued Monday, there was also one, uh, the, there was one opinion relating to an order. Uh, this is uh, not an opinion in a decided case, but it's related to an order issued by this, the court. In, in this case, the order was a, a denial of certiorari. That's when the court uh, chooses not to take a particular case. Now, I, I've discussed this in the past, but the court routinely uh, denies hundreds of cases in in, in, a, in a given week. Uh, it, 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 uh, numerous cases are denied. The court only takes a, a very small fraction, somewhere in the ballpark of 1% of petitions to the court are granted and those cases are heard. Um, so these uh, denials are very routine. And usually they, they're not accompanied by any explanation or opinion of any kind. But every once in a while, one or more of the justices um, who feels very strongly that a case should not have been denied will write an opinion uh, expressing their dissent from the denial. These are sometimes colloquially, colloquially referred to as dissentals. That's just a dissent from denial. Um, and in this case, it was a case called Trevino v. Davis. 
and there was one of these dissentals by uh, Justice Sotomayor joined by Justice Ginsburg. And this is a case of, of Carlos Trevino, and um, his his case had previously uh, gone up to the Supreme Court, and the court had uh, issued an opinion in in, uh, in his earlier case. And and it's it's um, what this is about. It's about um, ineffective assistance of counsel uh, at trial, and specifically, this was a capital case, a death penalty case. Um, and the uh, what the court held in the earlier version of or the earlier uh, Trevino case was that if there was ineffective assistance by trial counsel and also ineffective assistance at the first post-conviction opportunity to raise the ineffective assistance of counsel by trial counsel, then that claim is not defaulted. Now, let me just back up and explain this just a little bit more. Normally, if you have a, a uh, uh, most claims of, uh, of of problems with the trial, um, so legal claims about, about uh, defects in, in a trial, um, those claims are waived if they're not normally if they're not raised in the first post conviction action. That's that's just another name for for habeas corpus action. So a, an action by someone who's incarcerated who's challenging their conviction or the terms of their sentence or something like that. Um, in the first post conviction action that's brought, um, if claims are not raised at that point, they are normally waived, meaning they're 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 gone. They're, they can no longer be brought. <clears throat> Now, um, normally also there's, there's, there's no right to effective assistance of counsel in habeas. You have a right to, uh, effective assistance of counsel at trial, but not in these post-conviction actions. But the court carved out this exception in the Trevino case. If the, um, habeas counsel was ineffective in not raising the trial counsel's ineffectiveness, then effectively this defendant has been convicted without ever having a meaningful review of their, of their constitutional claim. So Trevino uh, was, uh, the court held that in that particular circumstance, um, the the trial ineffective assistance of counsel was not waived. And Trevino was, this case was sent back down for him to be given an opportunity to establish the ineffective assistance of his trial counsel. Now, when this uh, case went back down, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ultimately determined that uh, they, they ruled against Trevino and found that he had not been prejudiced by the trial counsel's failure to investigate mitigating evidence. So they said that that uh, you know even if the trial counsel was ineffective in not um, investigating mitigating evidence. Now, mitigating evidence—that's evidence that's raised by a defendant in the penalty phase of a capital crime—to um, uh, in, in order to try and co- uh, convince the jury that a death sentence is not appropriate. And it's a very broad category. A defendant is entitled to introduce any type of evidence that might sway a jury um, to believe that someone should not be executed. Um, and But the Fifth Circuit uh, held that um, the trial counsel's uh, failure to investigate mitigating evidence uh, didn't prejudice Trevino, meaning that it wouldn't have made a difference. It was, it was uh, the, the jury would not have changed its mind if they had had this additional evidence. They would have found him, uh, uh, they would have uh, declared him uh, that he should be executed anyway. Um, the specific evidence uh, at issue in this case was evidence that Trevino suffered from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder um, caused by, by his mother's uh, heavy alcohol consumption um, uh, while he was in the womb, uh, which, which leads to various um, – uh, behavioral defects and and uh, and other functional uh, disorders. Now, Justice Sotomayor in this uh, in this dissent uh, disagreed very strongly with the Fifth Circuit's decision, and she argued that the Fifth Circuit had not 
properly followed Supreme Court precedent because it had failed to consider this new mitigating evidence in light of the totality of the evidence presented at trial. Um, she said that the Fifth Circuit instead uh, basically stopped its consideration after determining that the new evidence, this uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder evidence, was double-edged evidence because it also revealed new uh, negative information about Trevino, including new violent incidents that hadn't previously been uh, revealed to the jury. Um, but Sotomayor argued that the, uh, the Fifth Circuit should have reconsidered all of the evidence actually presented to the jury in light of this new evidence because uh, in her in her recounting, this new evidence casts the existing evidence that the jury heard in a new light and might have changed the way that they weighed or evaluated that evidence. And also, the Fifth Circuit should have considered the new negative information. This is the double-edged um, portion that they refer to. Should have considered that in light of the other negative information already known by the jury. And in some cases, it was just cumulative of things the jury already knew and wouldn't necessarily have been any worse for Trevino. So she argued that the Fifth Circuit had just failed to appropriately reweigh this and and had not um, properly um, conducted this uh the, the prejudice prejudice analysis to determine whether he was prejudiced by the attorney's uh, ineffective assistance. So that that's that's uh, that's basically um, what that uh, opinion is about. But the uh, petition was denied, so so that claim is uh, is or that case that the court will not hear that, and that case is uh, is not going anywhere. Um, and so that moves me on. In addition to the four opinions in argued cases that I mentioned that we'll get to, it will start going through in a few minutes. There was one opinion, a per curiam opinion, um, a, a summary decision by the court. Now, per curiam just is refers to an unsigned opinion of the court. Uh, it's instead of being uh, written by a particular justice, it's just by the court. Um, this is normal in summary decisions. That's decisions that are um, taken without. Uh, full briefing and oral argument uh, that are just decided on the uh, petition, the the cert petition and uh, and opposition. Um, and so the court issued this per curiam opinion in a case called Azar v. Garza. And uh, this per curiam, there were no noted dissents. Now, for per curiam dis- opinions, unlike uh, signed opinions, justices don't necessarily always note their dissent. So the fact that a procurium has no noted dissents doesn't necessarily mean that every justice voted for the outcome and agrees with the opinion, but no one disagreed enough to um, want to register their their dissent or 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 perhaps if there were any uh, justices in dissent they didn't uh, didn't feel that it was helpful to uh, to to note that on the record. But let me uh, talk a little bit about this case. This case has actually received quite a bit of media attention over the last uh, half a year or so. I haven't discussed it previously on the podcast because there's been no real action from the court. Now, this case has been relisted numerous times. That means it's been uh, placed on the agenda for the court's uh, private conferences repeatedly over and over again without any uh, actual um uh, formal action on the case. Um, it, the case was originally filed with the Supreme Court in November, first considered in conference in December, and then just relisted repeatedly until this uh, opinion was finally issued. So there's a lot of speculation about what was going on internally. Um, now the opinion's been issued. Uh, it's not clear on the face of the opinion what was causing this lengthy delay, but I'll come back to that at the end. We can speculate a little. So here's the basic facts about this case. It, it uh, 
um, it involves a, a woman uh, referred to as Jane Doe, a pseudonym obviously, who's an unaccompanied minor who unlawfully crossed the border, border into the United States. Now, she was placed in a shelter in Texas run by the Office, Office of Refugee Resettlement. Um, she was eight weeks pregnant at the time she entered, and after an initial medical exam, she had requested an abortion. Now, here's the 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 the, the legal um, uh, issue. ORR, that's this Office of Refugee Resettlement, they, their policy prohibits facilitating abortions absent an emergency medical situation. Um, and the, the only options uh, under their policies were her voluntary departure, meaning she could agree to leave the United States, or um, work with the government to find a sponsor to take her into custody in the United States, after which time the sponsor uh, could allow her to obtain the abortion. Um, but obviously this is a very time-sensitive matter and uh, it could be a time-consuming process to find her a sponsor. And the longer she waits, the more risk of complications and things like that for an abortion. So a uh, guardian ad, guardian ad litem, that, that's just a, a term for uh, someone who is appointed by a court to represent the best interests of a minor or an incompetent person. Um, this guardian, guardian ad litem uh, brought a class action um, on her behalf, challenging this policy, um, uh, the 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 policy of ORR regarding not allowing uh, abortions for uh, minors in 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 uh, government's custody. Now, this uh, case in, it uh, resulted in, in very rapid litigation. The case was bouncing back and forth between the federal district court and the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and, uh, there, there were, uh, various, uh, opinions at both levels. And, um, uh, at one point in the, the process, Doe was allowed to get, um, pre-abortion counseling. Now this is required under Texas law, uh, under Texas law in order to obtain an abortion, there must be, uh, counseling at least 24 hours prior to the abortion conducted by the same doctor who uh, performs the abortion. Now that's, uh, that'll be very important for reasons I'll get to in just a moment. So here are the, the key events. And there are some disputed interpretations of these events, which I'll get to in a moment also. But the key events happened, uh, in late October of this past year. On October 24th, the district court issued an order to the government, uh, ordering the government to make, a, um, available uh, make, make Doe available for counseling and for obtaining the abortion proce- procedure. So to just al- allow her to, um, uh, to attend that counseling and abortion. Um, <clears throat> a, uh, transport, uh, from custody to the abortion clinic was scheduled for October 25th. So that's the very next morning at 7.30 AM. So again, the order was issued on October 24th. Uh, she was scheduled to be transported, uh, for a appointment at 7.30 a.m. on the 25th. Now, due to this 24-hour rule, um, the, uh, the, the doctor who had conducted the previous counseling was not available to perform the abortion, so she was scheduled to have uh, counseling with a new doctor on the 25th. And the government, therefore, believed that the abortion itself couldn't actually occur until the 26th. Uh, due to this 24-hour rule. Now, the government informed opposing counsel and the courts that it would file a stay application on the morning of October 25th. So it intended to uh, to move for a stay of the district court's order um, to prevent the uh, the abortion from taking place pending um, further, you know, legal uh, for appeals and, uh, and and legal procedures. Now, th- this is where the 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 big dispute comes in. Overnight, 
So this is the evening of the 24th into the 25th. At some point overnight, the appointment was changed. Instead of the 7.30 a.m. appointment with the new doctor for counseling, um, she had a 4.15 a.m. appointment with the old doctor, the one who had already uh, conducted counseling several days earlier, um, to actually have the abortion performed. The abortion did occur early that morning before the government uh, ever had an opportunity to file its stay uh, application on the 25th um, and without the government being aware until it was all, all over. Now, the government made uh, allegations. They, they uh, alleged that uh, Doe's counsel had made specific representations that the abortion couldn't occur until the 26th due to the counseling requirement and further kind of alleged that this was basically deliberate subterfuge to evade the government's uh, filing of a stay and that this misrepresentation, which the government regarded as a deliberate misrepresentation, it created a duty on the part of Doe's counsel to inform the government of the change uh, of appointments um, and that uh, that this this was just a, a uh, um, violation of the attorney's uh, duties of, of candor to opposing counsel and to the court by misleading him this in this way. Now, Doe's attorneys, uh, they um, very sharply dispute the, disputed this and said that the, basically this was just a change of circumstances and a miscommunication, misunderstanding on the government's party. Uh, part, I mean, um, they they say that they believed the abortion couldn't occur until the 26th because the original doctor was unavailable, but suddenly learned of the availability of the old doctor and then therefore went ahead and changed the plans. But they say they made no um, affirmative misrepresentation to the government. The government made assumptions um, that, that uh, turned out to be unwarranted. And, you know, they basically said it was the government's fault for sitting on its hands and not filing an immediate stay rather than waiting for the next morning, they could have immediately tried to move for a stay on the 24th, right after the district court issued its order. But instead, the government waited and decided that they would not file their stay until the following day, thinking that they had more time. Now, the government went to the Supreme Court with basically two separate issues. The first issue was that they wanted the Supreme Court to order um, a vacater. That means to order the lower court's rulings to be vacated, the rulings that allowed this abortion to go forward. Now, vacater is just a term for for um, wiping away a lower court decision. It, it basically erases the precedential value of a lower court decision. It says that this decision is no longer good law, so isn't binding precedent um, for later purposes. Uh, that means if there's a later case in the given jurisdiction uh, on the same issue, the judges in that case will be kind of writing on a clean sl- slate and won't be bound by the determinations of the judges in the previous case that's been vacated. So the government said that the lower court decisions should be vacated. And this is based on a, an old, uh, it's a, something called the Munsingware Doctrine, which is after an old Supreme Court case. And ba- the basic idea is when a party that's victorious in the lower courts causes a case to become moot um, and therefore there, thereby avoids appellate review, then the lower court decision should be vacated. Now, mootness just is that's just a term when when the the legal the legal conflict at issue in the case, the legal issue that the courts have been asked to decide, when that is no longer an issue for for some reason. And obviously, in this case, they're fighting over the availability of an abortion. Once the abortion happens, it's completely moot. There's nothing to fight over anymore. The legal issue is gone, so it's clearly moot. And so they the government argued under this Munsingware doctrine, the lower court decision should be wiped away. And the the idea behind this is is to prevent parties from gamesmanship where uh, they will deliberately, if they win below but are worried about being uh, overturned by a a higher court to take actions to moot the case to prevent the higher court from reversing the lower court's decision. Uh, And and the 
uh, court has said over the years that, that, that a party shouldn't be allowed to kind of um, game the system and kind of double benefit by getting the benefit of the lower court decision, but then um, preventing review of that lower court decision, yet keeping the decision on the books for uh, use in later cases as precedent. Now, the court agreed and ordered the vacater and said those those lower court decisions should basically be wiped from from uh, the books as as far as uh, precedential value. Now, the second issue is that the, the government actually sought sanctions against the attorneys uh, for Doe uh, for the alleged misrepresentations about the timing and nature of the procedures that Doe was going to undergo. Now, this, this was characterized and viewed by many as a, an, an extreme action by the government, a very extreme step. Um, uh, how extreme so you you uh, regardless may def- depend uh, heavily on on whose versions of the facts you're inclined to bl- believe. Uh, some have compared this if you if you if you want to try and um, uh, flip the uh, the the I guess the the ideological um, uh, valence of the case uh, around. Um, the comparison that, that's, uh, that's been made uh, several times is is an example of a uh, a death penalty case. Um, where, uh, if you imagine the, the exact same circumstance where there were a state with a, for example, a 24 hour waiting period before the, uh, after the, uh, medical personnel who are going to be carrying out an execution conducted a, a medical exam, a pre-execution exam. And, uh, a similar situation had happened where an execution was expected to take place, uh, two days later. Um, but the government, uh, took actions to, uh, change in secret, uh, change their plans and execute someone before a stake could be filed by the attorneys to prevent it from happening. Um, and that's been, you know, that's, that's kind of just a hypothetical that's been framed to kind of, uh, flip the valence and, and, and try and, uh, uh, see how, how this could be regarded as kind of a, a, uh, um, a unethical practice by the attorneys who are engaging in those kind of misrepresentations. But obviously, um, whether there was anything that, that is, uh, you know, at all um, uh, worthy of criticism or sanction depends very heavily on the exact facts, which are highly disputed. Exactly what was said, whether there were uh, explicit representations or just uh, over readings, over interpretations um, on 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 the government side, and the court basically didn't want to wade in to uh to deciding this issue. I'm just going to read because it's it's pretty clear and it's it's interesting. I'll read some of the language from the end of the court's opinion here. The court it says here and I'll, I'll quote from it. It says the court takes allegations like those the government allegations like those the government makes here seriously for ethical rules are necessary to the maintenance of a culture of civility and mutual trust within the legal profession. On the one hand, all attorneys must remain aware of the principle that zealous advocacy does not displace their obligations as officers of the court. Especially in fast-paced emergency proceedings like those at issue here, it is critical that lawyers and courts alike be able to rely on one another's representations. On the other hand, lawyers also have ethical obligations to their clients, and not all communication breakdowns constitute misconduct. The court need not delve into the factual disputes raised by the parties in order to answer the Munsingware question here. And Munsingware again just refers to that question of whether the lower court decision should should be vacated. So, so basically, the court just kind of gives this, uh, you know, um, uh, relatively uh, even-handed, uh, hands-off statement about the importance of the the ethical questions involved, but doesn't step in to to try and uh, dig into the the uh, factual disputes at all, and uh, is content to just rule on the uh, Munsingware issue. Um, and, uh, and, and that's that. So the result, uh, I think is a relatively uncontroversial 
mootness decision, uh, followed with this, you know, relatively uncontroversial statement of general uh, ethical duties. So, you know, that, that leaves the question of, of what took so long. It, it seems um, clear that, that, you know, it didn't take the court six months just to uh, come up with that bland couple page um, uh, opinion that, that doesn't, doesn't really uh, stake out any, any real controversial ground. Um, so it seems very likely that there was some serious back and forth between the justices uh, internally um, that presumably ultimately resulted in in this what what may be some sort of compromise uh, by the justices in order to um, maybe turn down the heat and try and resolve this on a uh, a uh, less contentious uh, um, basis. But again, all speculation because uh, we don't really have any 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 way of knowing what was really uh, going on uh, for uh, the last half a year on this case. Um, one one last thing before we get on to the opinions. Uh, there were no new grants this week, no new cases granted uh, for the calendar next term. We're keeping an eye on this because as the court uh, gets toward the end of its term, uh, at the end of June, it's, it's uh, filling up its fall calendar for next year. Uh, so far, the court has granted 18 cases for next year. Um, it can hold... Uh, to have a basically a full fall calendar, it would take about 34 cases, um, but it's it's uh, remains to be seen whether the court will manage to fill its fall calendar. The last several years, the court has not had a full fall calendar. It's had days with less arguments than it would uh, um, than it could easily uh, uh, um, hold uh, here on those days. Um, but uh, again, there's uh, still uh, three weeks left, and uh, remains to be seen how many more cases the court will add before the month is out. So let's move on to the opinions. Now, coming into this week, the court still had 29 outstanding cases with only four weeks left uh, by the end of June. Now, the end of June is just their um, self-imposed deadline uh, to issue all of its opinions. And the court had only had 29 outstanding cases, but it issued opinions in only four argued cases. So that means we've still got 25 cases to go with only three more weeks left in the term. That means uh, more than eight opinions a week on average. This is an extremely backloaded term. And in in those 25 remaining cases, there are still about seven to nine cases, depending on how you count and what you consider, but seven to nine cases that are really high-profile cases, cases that have got a lot of media attention, um, either hot-button issues or... or, um, or uh, Issues that fall along um, uh, you know, partisan political lines. Uh, there's really there's only been about uh, three decisions so far I- issued on on uh, high profile cases that the court heard this term. But there's you know again seven to nine of these high profile cases that we're still waiting on just coming in the last three weeks. So this is this is just kind of a crazy June for the court, even more so than usual. June is always. Uh, there's always a heavy concentration of the court's cases right at the end of the term, and there tend to be some of the highest profile cases right toward the end, but this term is just loaded up much more than usual. So with that out of the way, let's move on to the opinions. Um, there are four of them, and I'll run through, uh, I'll try and run very quickly through three of them so I can spend a little more time on Masterpiece Cake Shop since that's the, the one that uh, people have been paying the most attention to. Now, the first case is one called Lamar Archer and, and Coffrin LLP v. Appling. And this is a bankruptcy case. <clears throat> and the, the, the basic issue here is, um, I'll, I'll give a quick, quick facts 
that were involved in this case. Uh, the, 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 the bankruptcy debtor, it was a, a, a man named Appling, and he had retained the law firm, that's this Lamar Archer and Coffrin law firm, for litigation over a business he owned. He fell behind on his monthly payments to the law firm. And in talking with the, uh, the law firm, he claimed that he was expecting a, uh, a tax refund of about $100,000 for an amended filing. And he said he was earmarking that tax refund to pay his legal fees. Um, he strung the firm along for a while. He actually eventually received only $60,000, but went and spent that $60,000 on other business expenses, did not pay the law firm. Um, now, the, the, the law firm uh, sued him for his uh, his unpaid legal fees, and he filed for bankruptcy and argued that uh, the debt to this law firm was dischargeable in bankruptcy. It was listed among his various debts, and, and it was, would be discharged uh, as a result of his bankruptcy. The firm argued that because this was a fraudulent debt, and they regarded it as fraudulent because he had claimed to be receiving this $100,000 tax refund, which was only actually worth $60,000, because it was a fraudulent debt, they argued it was non-dischargeable, meaning he could not wipe it clear in bankruptcy. And he argued that, a, a, that uh, Appling argued a further exception, saying that because the specific type of fraud was related to his financial state, it was fraud related to his financial state, that was an exception to the rule that you can't discharge fraudulent debts. And the firm countered again saying, no, this was not about his financial state. It was just about a specific asset, a source of funds, the tax refund. Now, what's at issue here is a provision of the tax code that prevents the discharge of certain fraudulent debts. And here's, I'll just read some of the language. There's no discharge for money, property, services, or an extension renewal or refinancing of credit to the extent obtained by false pretenses, a false representation, or actual fraud. And then here's the, so that's that's saying that there's no discharge of uh, of of debts that are that are a result of uh, fraud, false pretenses, false representation, or fraud. But then there's this exception to the exception that says other than a statement respecting the debtor's or an insider's financial condition. So the argument by Appling is this was a statement respecting his financial condition, and therefore uh, f- does not fall within this uh, this uh, non-discharge rule. So the court, uh, there, this 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 opinion was a uh, unanimous opinion written by Justice Sotomayor. Now, unanimous except for one particular section of the opinion that uh, Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch did not join, and I'll, I'll return to that at the end. But it was a, a almost a unanimous opinion. And it relied primarily on the specific language of the statute. It looked specifically at the word respecting when it refers to a statement respecting financial condition. Um, and so that spe- respecting can have a very broad meaning, it can be a broad term that means you know, something concerning or with relation to. And then uh, the court pointed to uh, various legal contexts where, where this term is used interchangeably with broader terms like relating to. Um, and, also um, also pointed out that if Congress had wanted a narrower scope, it could have used more specific language like a statement of financial condition, which would have been much more limited. And elsewhere in the bankruptcy code, Congress did use that, that much more limited language, statement of this or that. Um, Sotomayor also said that, that the, the law firm's position would lead to some arbitrary distinctions. The same misrepresentation would have different effects 
if it was made as part of a financial statement or just as a solo statement. So if someone misrepresented a particular asset, for example, the fact that they were going to receive a tax refund of a certain amount um, just by itself, then, then according to the law firm's position, that would not be dischargeable. But if they made that exact same misrepresentation as one item in a otherwise truthful financial statement, then that would be uh, a... Uh, is still dischargeable because it would it would fit within the exception, and uh, the court said that that's just kind of arbitrary and doesn't make any sense. Um, the court also looked at the history of the specific language, the statement respecting the debtor's financial condition, and found that this this language actually dates all the way back to 1926, was carried over into the modern bankruptcy code, which was enacted in 1978. And the court said there was a long history between 1926 and 1978 of lower courts interpreting this language to cover statements about individual assets, not about an overall financial situation, but statements about an individual asset. And then when Congress enacted the code in 1978, it was in the context of these consistent court interpretations saying that that language covered these uh, uh, misrepresentations related to individual assets. So, so that, so on that basis, the court basically said, uh, yes, uh, it's 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 that respecting language statement respecting financial condition is broad enough to cover a statement about an individual asset asset that uh, that is is you know directly related to or concerns the f- overall financial situation. Um, the court countered some some uh, some counter arguments made by the other side. One was that this interpretation is too broad. It would basically it would basically squeeze out the the rule about non-discharge for fraudulent debts. The court counters that no, there are still many types of fraudulent debts that would uh, not be dischargeable. For example, fraudulent schemes, which may not even um, involve a misrepresentation, or fraud relating to the value of goods, property, or services involved in a transaction. Those type of things um, would not be uh, discharged and 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 would still be. Um, uh, covered by the the general uh, non discharge for fraud provision, and the court also went on to um, to discuss an argument that the law firm had made that this interpretation was is inconsistent with the code's general purpose of protecting an honest but unfortunate debtor, and saying that this instead extends that protection to kind of devious and and uh, and deliberately deceptive debtors. Now the court argues that. The specific language used in the, in the statute that the court interpreted it reflects the balance that was struck by Congress. And then the court, in the Sotomayor's opinion, goes on to quote from an earlier Supreme Court case that cited a report from the House of Representatives explaining that Congress had wanted to ease the burden on debtors. Um, there was a concern over um, schemes by unscrupulous banks where they encouraged debtors to make certain misrepresentations, basically to to provide incomplete financial information. Um, for the specific purpose of trying to insulate themselves from bankruptcy discharge later because they could point to that earlier misrepresentation and say that that pre- prevented the the, uh, the debt from being discharged. Um, the court says that Lamar's, the, the law firm's interpretation wouldn't even cover the specific um, problem from that House report, the, the, the problem of incomplete lists of debts provided to banks that Congress was trying to exempt um, because they aren't, they weren't, they were statements of debts only, not statements of overall financial condition. So the court said, uh, based on this, uh, uh, the, the purposes, uh, expressed in this house report, um, the broader interpretation 
was the better interpretation. Now, this section of the opinion is the section that was not joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. Now, they didn't explain. There was no uh, separate opinion or explanation why they didn't join this. But the likely reason is the reliance in this section to the House report. These justices have all opposed in the past um, the use of legislative history to like House reports to discern the meaning of statutes. They've, they've argued that statutes need to be interpreted on, interpreted on the basis of the statutory language actually enacted into law and not on the basis of uh, committee reports and things like that in Congress. So that's it for that case. And moving on to the next case on our list, uh, it's a case called Hughes v. United States. Now, <clears throat> the 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 legal issue in this case it was an issue about a question about sentencing, criminal sentencing. Um, but there was a second question that the court had um, kind of teed up to resolve in this case. That was a complicated question about how to interpret certain precedents of the Supreme Court. But the court decided not to actually touch that question. It sidestepped it, and I'll come back to that in a few minutes. <clears throat> Now, this concerned what's known as type C plea agreements. So these are plea agreements, plea bargains, where there's an agreement to a specific sentence or sentence range in the agreement. So so the the defendant pleads guilty, and in this agreement with the prosecutor, uh, pleads guilty and agrees to be sentenced to a particular term. Um, Now, these agreements must be approved by the judge, and the judge, in deciding whether to approve these, has to calculate the guidelines range according to the sentencing guidelines, though the judge is not obligated to follow this guidelines range. The, the judge is required to calculate it in the first place um, when determining whether it's a reasonable plea agreement. Now, the issue, the specific issue in this case is what happens if the guidelines range for the particular crime is later lowered to a lower range, is the uh, defendant entitled to be resentenced uh, on the basis of that lowering of the guidelines range. Now, the basic facts in this case are that the defendant, Hughes, was convicted of a conspiracy to distribute meth and as a felon in possession of a firearm. He reached a plea agreement uh, where he pl- he pled to, uh, uh, an, he agreed to an agreement that where he would receive a 180-month sentence. So that's a 15-year um, sentence. Now, the judge, in approving this agreement, calculated that his guidelines range would be 188 to 235 months, um, so he's slightly, you know, well, slightly higher at the low end, 188 on the low end versus the 180 in his agreement. But the judge approved of the agreement as reasonable. Now, within two months of his uh, plea agreement, the guidelines were revised and the sentencing ra- range that was 188 to 235 dropped down to 151 to 188. Again, he had pled to 180. He moved to, for a reduced sentence, he argued that he should, his sentence should be reduced on the basis of the the um, the sentencing commission uh, deciding that a lower um, sentence range for this crime was appropriate. Now, the standard, the legal standard for a sentence reduction when a guidelines range changes is, and uh, here's a quote: um, a sentence can be reduced if quote a term of imprisonment based on a sentencing range that has subsequently been lowered by the sentencing commission. So, so, so if it is a term of imprisonment based on a sentencing range that has subsequently been lower, lowered. So the question is, was his sentence based on a sentencing range when his sentence came out of this plea agreement? Now, this exact question was heard by the court in a previous case, a 2011 case called Freeman v. United States. And in that case, the court split three ways. It was a 4-1-4 decision. There was a four-justice plurality that said, 
that a case, a, a uh, sentence is based on a sentencing range when the guidelines range was part of the judge's analytical framework in approving the agreement. So if the judge referred to the sentencing guidelines in determining whether it was a reasonable plea agreement, then it was based on the guidelines range. Now, Justice Sotomayor concurred in that other case, the Freeman case, but on a different rationale. Uh, she said that it was a, a um, sentence was based on the sentencing range when the agreement expressly or clearly relied on the sentencing range. So she focused on the agreement itself on whether it relied on the sentencing range. And then there was a four justice dissent which said that the justices, the judge's decision in these um, in these plea cases is not based on the sentencing range at all. It's just based on the plea agreement. And therefore, in none of these cases, is it based on the sentencing range? Now, the issue in this case is that in this case, the plea agreement made no reference to the sentencing range. So it seems like under the plurality, the four justice pluralities um, reasoning, this would be based on the sentencing range. But under the Sotomayor concurrence in the Freeman case, it would not be based on the sentencing range. So the issue is, which of those is the governing law and which which of those is, is the rule that should be followed by a lower court? Now, what this comes down to is in, in a case called Marks v. United States, which is from 1977, the court um, laid down a rule for these types of fractured cases where there isn't a five-justice majority. And the court said when there's no single rationale that explains the result that gets five or more votes, then the position taken by those members who concurred in the judgment on the narrowest grounds is the, the binding precedent in the case. Now, the court did not explain exactly what it meant by narrowest grounds, and the lower courts have differed very, uh, quite, quite a bit on how to apply this narrowest grounds test, and it results in a lot of kind of puzzles and oddities. The Supreme Court since then, since 1977, it's been more than 40 years, the Supreme Court has not clarified this standard. Now, this isn't surprising. The Supreme Court isn't bound by its own precedents. The Supreme Court can always re- overrule, even if the Supreme Court has a unanimous nine to zero precedent, uh, justices could decide to overrule that and, and go in a different decision, uh, different direction in a future case. So when a fractured precedent returns to the Supreme Court, the court usually just decides, re-decides the underlying legal question and doesn't address this Marx rule question of how to interpret its previous decision. So, and when the Marx rule does make a brief appearance in Supreme Court opinions is often with different justices and concurrences and dissents disagreeing about how exactly it should apply to a particular case. So, so it, there's, it really hasn't given any clear guidance. So the court specifically included this issue as, as something it was, it was, uh, intending to rule on and it was heavily briefed and discussed at oral argument. Um, but, uh, but what happened, what happened here is the court basically ducked that entire Marx rule question. The case ended with a six to three decision with Justice Kennedy writing the majority opinion. There's also a short concurrence by Justice Sotomayor and a dissent by Justice Roberts with Justices Thomas and Alito. Now, going back to the majority, I said it was a six justice majority. Now, uh, as I said, this isn't surprising because the court had a clear majority. Uh, it's not bound by its own precedents, so it wasn't really forced to deal with the Marx issue. What the majority did was it adopted the Freeman plurality position, the four-justice plurality position, but now it has six justices making a clear majority. It says if a sentence is based on the guidelines range, uh, it, a sentence is based on the guidelines range if it was part of the framework the judge relied on in accepting the agreement. But it's, the court said that this won't apply in certain cases. For example, if a judge rejects the guidelines range um, as providing guidance in a particular case, or if there's something else like, for example, a mandatory minimum sentence that supersedes the guidelines range, then it wouldn't be. Um, 
And, and, and the court basically said the statute refers to the reasons for the judge's sentence, not the reasons for the plea agreement. So that's why they go with this plurality rule. Um, and the, the, the majority also rejects the government's argument that these type of reductions are depriving the government of the bargain for sentence in the plea bargain, um, uh, in, in the, the sentence that it bargained for. And it may, it may have given up, um, certain charges or things that it could have brought in exchange for the, the, the plea bargain. Um, but the court said that, uh, regardless, the sentence is, is, uh, it, the statutory language, uh, says that if the sentence is based on the guidelines range, and in these cases it is, um, now this brings me to the Justice Sotomayor's uh, concurrence. Justice Sotomayor's con- concurrence is, is interesting because she argues in that concurrence, she says that she continues to believe that her solo concurrence in Freeman is actually the correct rule. Um, she says the sentence should be based on the agreement. Uh, the agreement in turn may be based on the guidelines when that's clearly reflected. Um, but she goes on to say that she recognizes that her concurrence has caused some, it causes, does cause some arbitrary disparities based on the wording of the agreement. And she recognizes the difficulties that were caused by the 414 split in the Freeman case, uh, such that it didn't result in good guidance or uniformity or, or predictability. So she says that she has decided in light of that to join the majority in full to ensure clarity and stability in the law. She says the majority view is closer to her position than the dissent is, so she's joining that majority um, rather than uh, standing on her own with a separate concurrence like she did in Freeman. Now, it's interesting because in this case, it's actually unnecessary. I mentioned it was a 6-3 to three decision, and that's because Justice Scalia has since um, passed away and been replaced by Justice Gorsuch. Justice Scalia was in the four-justice dissent in the Freeman case, where Justice Gorsuch joined, joined the majority in, in uh, this, this Hughes case. So the split would have been five to three, even without Justice Sotomayor. Um, so she didn't actually need to join the majority to create a, to create a clear uh, a majority. It was already there, but she chose to do so anyway. Uh, it's interesting uh, um, to see if uh, um, that kind of dynamic is visible in the future in other cases of, of uh, statements that, that she is joining a, a uh, opinion she doesn't fully agree with in order to create a binding majority. Uh, then I mentioned there's a dissent by Justice Roberts joined by Thomas and Alito. They uh, just say that they're sticking with their position from the Freeman dissent. They said the sentence is actually based solely on the agreement, not on the guidelines, um, and that the majority is upsetting the balance that was struck in these plea bargains. And they point actually in this particular case of Hughes, the government dropped certain charges and actually gave up a sentence enhancement that it could have pressed for that would have resulted in life imprisonment. And it gave these things up in exchange for reaching an agreement to the 180-month sentence. And so they're arguing that it really upsets this agreement to come back now and uh, and allow uh, um, Hughes to be resentenced. So that's, the, that's it for that case. Excuse me for one second. <clears throat> I'm sorry. So the, the next case is a case called Coons v. United States. Now this deals with that exact same, um, resentencing provision, but in a, a different con- context. This case involved five descendants who had lengthy drug sentencing, sen- sentences. But in each case, excuse me, <coughs> in each case, the defendant had a mandatory minimum sentence that was longer than the, uh, the, uh, guidelines sentence range. Just for example, if the guidelines range was in the ballpark of 15 to 18 years, 
um, they, they may have had a 20 year mandatory minimum sentence. Now, each of these defendants was entitled to, there's a escape hatch, uh, there's a statutory provision where if someone provides substantial cooperation to the government, then the mandatory minimum, there's an exception to the mandatory minimum and they can be sentenced below that mandatory minimum. And the way it works is in these sentencing proceedings is the judge calculates the guidelines range, <clears throat> then looks to the mandatory minimum. If the mandatory minimum is greater than the guidelines range, then the the defendant is just sentenced at the mandatory minimum instead of the guidelines range. Now, that's what happened here. Then the judge calculates a a, a, a reduction, a, a discount to the sentence based on the cooperation and applies that discount to the mandatory minimum sentence to result in a final sentence. The issue here is that the, the sentencing ranges, these, these ranges, so for in the, the, the example I gave, if the range was, say, a 15 to 18-year guideline, if that, that, that range was later um, lowered and that reduction was made retroactive, meaning that normally um, a, a uh, defendant w- could be entitled to resentencing on the basis of that, redu- basis of that reduction, uh, and also the sentencing commission indicated that um, <clears throat> it, it felt that the resentencing should be conducted without reference to the mandatory minimum in these cases. Because the mandatory minimum was not necessarily applicable, the sentencing commission believed that the guidelines range should be used instead and the deduction applied to that. So that, in theory, could have resulted in a sizable reduction in sentence for these defendants. Now, um, this case resulted in a, a unanimous, uh, an unanimous opinion by Justice Alito, basically rejecting the idea that uh, these defendants were entitled to resentencing. They said that basically the mandatory minimum sentences are not based on the sentencing guidelines, where here um, the resentencing provision only applies when there's a term of imprisonment based on a sentencing range that has subsequently been lowered. These sentences were um, reductions. Uh, they were... Uh, discounts off of mandatory minimums, not discounts off of the sentencing guideline ranges. Therefore, the provision just doesn't apply. Um, there were some counter arguments, for example, that the guidelines are a required starting point. The court countered that, yes, they're the required starting point, but then they're completely discarded and a different um, point is used for the calculation. Also, um, that the court is required uh, to depart downward for cooperation in accordance with the guidelines, but the court notes that they need to do it in, co- in accordance with the guidelines, including the uh, provisions of the guidelines that specifically say um, that uh, the ranges don't need to be used when you're dealing with the mandatory minimum. Um, and and uh, there are a few other arguments, but in general, the court uh, relied on the, that uh, plain language of the uh, resentencing posi- provision uh, referring to a sentence that's based on a sentencing range, just that it just doesn't fit the, uh, um, doesn't fit What's going on when there's a uh, when there's a mandatory minimum and therefore uh, no resentencing is allowed in these cases. So with that, I'm going to move on to the last case of of, uh, of uh, the week, which is Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Uh, let me start by quickly summarizing the case, and then I'll explain what the court actually decided. Now, here here's the, the basic facts. Jack Phillips is the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is a cake shop in Colorado. Among other things, he created custom wedding cakes. And all of his wedding cakes were custom made. He didn't have, uh, on the shelf, uh, wedding, pre-made wedding cakes. They were all custom made to order. Now, in 2012, uh, a gay couple, uh, by the name of, uh, Charlie Craig and Dave Mullins came to Masterpiece Cake Shop to order a cake for their wedding celebration. 
Uh, now, Phillips, uh, the the owner of Masterpiece, asked who the cake was for, and when it was told he was told it was for them for their wedding, he said that he would not create a cake for a same sex wedding. He offered to sell them any of the off the shelf products uh, in his shop, pastries, other products, or or cakes for other um, other occasions, but said he would not create a wedding cake for a uh, same sex wedding. Craig and Mullins left the shop. Um, now, significantly, there was no significant, there was no discussion whatsoever of the specific design of the cake in this particular case. Phillips turned them down immediately upon learning it was for the, a same-sex wedding. Uh, it turns out that the couple had plans for a rainbow cake. That's a cake that, when when it's sliced into the the cake layers, reveal a rainbow pattern. Um, symbolizing the, the, the gay pride flag. And they later got a, a donated cake from another vendor that, that had this design. But none of that was known by Phillips at the time when he rejected it. He rejected it just on the basis that it, the cake was for a same-sex wedding. Now, Phillips said he based his rejection on his religious beliefs, which were in opposition to same-sex marriage. Uh, Craig and Mullins went and filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission under the state's anti-discrimination law. The Colorado public accommodations law includes sexual orientation as a protected classification. Um, and, uh, and so they, they brought that complaint to the civil rights commission. Now Phillips, um, defended himself, uh, under first amendment theories and he had two first amendment legal theories that he raised. The first was a free exercise claim. He argued that compelling him to create this cake against his religious convictions violates his right to the free exercise of religion. Now, this is typically viewed as a difficult legal claim due to a case called Employment Division v. Smith from 1990, which held that a neutral law of general applicability doesn't violate the free exercise clause, even if it incidentally burdens the exercise of religion. So when a law is a neutral law that applies to everyone that isn't specifically targeting religious practice, but just has an incidental effect of burdening certain religious practice, that's not a violation. And so that makes this a difficult argument um, uh, but, but there, there, there were counter arguments on the other side that, that, uh, that he made. Now, he also had a free speech claim. This is a, a claim, uh, that uh, there's a, an area of free speech doctrine, uh, it's the compelled speech doctrine that, that's a very strong constitutional protections <coughs> against people being compelled to, uh, express a particular message. This is potentially a stronger claim. Um, but this is kind of an unresolved area of how compelled speech doctrine interacts with anti-discrimination law and, and a, a difficult uh, kind of semi-factual question about whether creating a cake uh, should count as speech at all. Now, expressive conduct can be speech, and there's plenty of cases that show that various forms of expressive conduct um, are protected just as much as uh, actual verbal speech. But the question is, is cake, is baking a cake expressive enough to, to count under this test. Now, Phillips lost his case before the Civil Rights Commission, and he appealed it to the Colorado State Courts and lost again there. Um, the, the, both of these uh, claims were rejected, the free exercise and free speech claims. He responded by stopping uh, selling wedding cakes entirely, which, which uh, was uh, apparently about 40% of his business. Um, but he petitioned the Supreme Court to take his case on these uh, two um, First Amendment grounds, the free exercise and free speech grounds. Now, the result in this case was the court decided for Phillips, um, so so the cake baker, Jack Phillips, he won here, but not on either of the two theories that the court granted the case to consider. Instead, it was based on a third different basis, also based on religious liberty, liberty, but different. And it was basically that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission 
had engaged in religious discrimination against Phillips in the course of adjudicating his case. Um, so the, the, I'll go into more detail in a moment, but the impact here is that this is a very narrow ruling based on the specific facts of the way the Civil Rights Commission um, conducted the hearings in Phillips' case. It doesn't resolve these free exercise or compelled speech issues. It doesn't invalidate or limit Colorado's anti-discrimination law. Just as an illustration of how narrow this is, um, in theory, if Jack Phillips were to start selling wedding cakes again tomorrow and another gay couple came to his shop for a wedding cake and was again refused, he would be in the exact same position he was before. He could still be brought before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. The commission could still theoretically find against him, and but he would still have open these free succession and compelled speech uh, arguments to, to again raise because the Supreme Court hasn't squarely um, either endorsed or foreclosed either of those. Now, despite the narrowness of this ultimate holding in this case, there's several opinions, several, separate opinions in this case, a dissent and several concurrences, and they do shed a lot of light on what various justices think about these unresolved First Amendment claims. And so this kind of gives at least some indication of how a future case may be resolved um, by the court, and lower courts will likely look to those opinions, at least for some guidance on how to resolve these issues. So with that kind of summary out of the way, let me quickly try and run through each of the opinions in the case. Now, another point is, although this was highly, this was anticipated to be an extremely closely divided decision, um, it was actually decided by a seven to two margin. Now, this is probably, um, in large part because of the very narrow, um, uh, grounds that the, the case was decided on. So there was a, a seven to two decision. It was a majority opinion by Justice Kennedy for six justices. This includes the conservatives, Roberts, Alito, and Gorsuch, and liberal justices, Kagan and Breyer. It does not include Justice Thomas. He agreed with the ultimate outcome. He, outcome. he was the seventh judge for uh, ruling for um, Jack Phillips, but he did not join Justice Kennedy's opinion and decided on different grounds. And that leaves Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor in dissent. There were also separate concurrences by Justice Kagan, by Justice Gorsuch, and a concurrence by Justice Justice Thomas, who again didn't join the uh, Kennedy's majority opinion. And then a dissent by Justice Ginsburg joined by Justice Sotomayor. So let me run through the opinions. Kennedy's majority basically uh, rely, it, our, the, it, the, the, uh, the core idea in his uh, majority opinion is that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission's actions were, quote, inconsistent with the state's obligation of religious neutrality. And he said that, quote, the, the, the quote, question of whether, of, I'm sorry, question of when the free exercise of, of his religion must yield to an otherwise valid exercise of state power needed to be determined in an adjudication in which religious hostility on the part of the state itself would not be a factor in the balance. And the issue was that, um, that, uh, he, he, Kennedy describes Philip's religious beliefs as follows. He says that Philip's believes that God's intention for marriage from the beginning of history is that it is and should be the union of one man and one woman. That's a quote. And also that quote, creating a wedding cake for a same sex wedding would be equivalent to participating in a celebration that is contrary to his own most deeply held beliefs. So it's kind of Kennedy's framing of the basic religious beliefs involved. Kennedy observes that there must be some line drawing conducted uh, by courts in these cases, he gives an example on the free exercise clause of a clergy member who uh, officiates at weddings and says that if a clergy member um, were to be compelled to officiate 
at a wedding that violated that clergy member's religious beliefs, this would be a clear violation of the right to free exercise. But he also notes that extending this too far beyond that, that, that kind of core, uh, uh, um, protected area, extending this right too far would would have the result of potentially gutting anti-discrimination law. And so some line must be drawn um, uh, in between. And on the free speech side, he, he notes that, that clearly a free speech argument can't go too far, that, that selling, for example, selling generic goods for a wedding is not expressive conduct. So you think of things like um, uh, uh, selling, um, uh, you know, uh, renting plates and knives and tables and chairs. That's not expressive conduct. But at some point, uh, services become so expressive that it implicates protections against compelled speech. But the exact lines aren't clear. And Phillips was entitled to a neutral consideration of of whether where his a particular case falls in these areas. And the focus here was on first, first on statements of several of the commissioners on the civil rights commission during the public hearings in Phillips case. And there were statements, for example, that Phillips can believe what he believes, but cannot act on his religious beliefs. If he decides to do business in the state. And another statement that if a businessman wants to do business in the state and he's got an issue with the law impacting his personal belief system, he needs to look at being able to compromise. Now you could view these statements as just a, these these statements as just a kind of a statement of the employment division v Smith principle, the idea that there's no blanket religious exemption from neutral laws. But they also could be interpreted, and, and in some ways sound when when you say, for example, um, he can believe what he wants to believe, but can't act on his religious beliefs if he decides to do business. They could be. Um, interpreted as kind of a demand for people to keep their religious views out of the marketplace. And that, uh, that idea is, you know, antithetical to the American free exercise of religion tradition. It is, you know, that's something that is more familiar in, for example, the, the French legal system where the secularity laws in some case prohibit uh, uh, expressions of religion in certain contexts, but it's not something that's uh, kind of um, uh, part of the American free exercise tradition where people are free to take their religious beliefs into various aspects of uh, their lives. Now they may be limited in, in, uh, in, in, by, by other generally applicable laws, but there's no prohibition on them using their, uh, uh religious, uh, exercising their religious rights, even in commercial contexts. And then there was another statement at a later hearing, um, where, uh, the, the commissioner said, uh, saying that, that, that this was a reiterating what was said at the previous hearing, saying freedom of religion and religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust, whether it be we can list hundreds of situations where freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination. And to me, it is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use to use their religion to hurt others. And, and the court notes that that comment wasn't objected to by other commissioners or disavowed in any subsequent proceedings. So, so the, in the argument in Kennedy's opinion, basically is that this, this showed basically a disrespect for, um, Phillips' religious views rather than a, uh, a neutral and fair consideration of where the line is drawn on, on what is protected um, religious expression or free speech. Now, the court also looked at a separate uh, second um, factor in determining that the, the court had not treated Phillips fairly, which was uh, what, what was uh, characterized that differential treatment between Phillips' case and three other cases. Now, these three cases, there were three test cases that were brought. So another individual in the state of Colorado, this was after Phillips case had, had occurred and had kind of uh, reached, uh, made, made, uh, made the news. Another individual uh, went to three separate cake shops and at each requested custom cakes 
that had specific anti-gay religious messages on those cakes. At each cake shop, his request was refused. And then he brought complaints in each of these cases to the Civil Rights Commission, alleging religious discrimination, alleging that he was discriminated on the basis of his religious creed, his religious beliefs, which he was asking to be expressed in these cakes. The commission in those cases, each of those cases, found that there was no violation, found that the refusal was based on derogatory, hateful, or discriminatory language that he requested. Um, but the, so, the, so here's where the court found differential treatment. In those cases, the commission found the specific nature of that language, the fact that it was hateful, derogatory, discriminatory, um, justified the bake shop's um, refusals of those, ca- those cake orders. But the court says in Philip's case, the commission said that any expression – um, that came from the cake he was asked to bake couldn't be attributed to Phillips. It would only be attributed to the customer who was ordering those cakes. So the court regarded that as kind of a different standard in the two cases, depending on how the court wanted to, the commission wanted to rule. Um, the court also said that um, the uh, the commission uh, defended the other bake shops on the basis of their willingness to sell other products to the customers or to sell to other, uh, including. Um, uh, other members of the, the, the religion at issue. But in the Phillips case, it, the, the commission deemed it irrelevant that, uh, Phillips was willing to sell other products to, uh, the, the couple in the case. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, the, a, a kind of a key differential was that, uh, the court regarded the commission as, um, giving weight to the government's own determination, um, that the statements at issue in the other cases were offensive, um, and that the discrimination uh, on Phillips's part was, was offensive. So basically saying the offensiveness of the, uh, the, the, the statements that sought, were sought to be represented in the cakes, that justified a different treatment. And the court says the government can never dis- distinguish on the basis of its own assessment of offensiveness. That's just antithetical to, um, the, the kind of core First Amendment principles, free speech principles. Now, Kennedy did not say that Colorado could not distinguish um, in any way between those cases. He left open the possibility that Colorado might have been able to have a neutral uh, neutral way of, of distinguishing those three other cases on some other criteria. Um, but he just basically argued that they had failed to do so here. It had based its decision on a negative normative evaluation of the particular justification for his objection. And, and this is a quote, was presupposing the legitimacy of religious, the illegitimacy of religious beliefs and practices. So here's a conclusion here from Justice Kennedy. He says, the outcome of cases like this in other circumstances must await further elaboration in the courts, all in the context of recognizing that these disputes must be resolved with tolerance, without undue disrespect to sincere religious beliefs, and without subjecting gay persons to indignities when they seek goods and services in an open market. So again, you know, it's, it's, these, these are open questions. He, you know, he expresses the importance of tolerance. Um, both for uh, religious objectors and for the um, the classes protected by non-discrimination law, but says that it's an open issue for future cases. Um, anyway, moving on, Justice Kagan, joined by Justice Breyer, uh, concurred in the case. Now, she joined the majority in full and wrote just briefly to elaborate on the disparate treatment uh, aspect of the, um, the, the three other cakes with anti-gay messages. And she says that the state agencies found that these requested messages were offensive in nature, nature. And she said it was, it was significant because she, in her view, they could have easily decided those cases on neutral grounds. She says those cakes contain messages that the bakers wouldn't have sold to anyone. Um, so they actually don't violate anti-discrimination law at all. Uh, the bakers in those cases would not have sold these cakes with anti-gay messages to any person, regardless of their religious affiliation or creed. 
Um, and therefore it was not, it, there was no discrimination involved. It was based purely on a message containing a cake, not based on the identity of the person ordering the cake. Um, now, uh, she, she, uh, Kagan also argues that, um, um, or, or kind of characterizes the majority opinion that she joined as, as based on the discriminatory reasoning of the state courts. So the fact that the state courts use discriminatory reasoning, not on the ultimate result they reach. So she's kind of indicating that she thinks the state courts may have gotten it right, um, on, on, uh, the ultimate result that, that, uh, that Phillips's actions were not protected under the, under the first amendment. That may have been the right result, but, uh, since they reached it in a discriminatory manner, uh, it could not be, it could not stand. Uh, that, that's basically what she says there. Now there's a separate, a different concurrence by Justice Gorsuch. Now he writes, joins, also joins the majority in full, but writes to, um, disagree about whether, um, Basically disagreeing with that point I just mentioned from Justice Kagan's concurrence, disagrees whether Phillips's refusal um, to to bake a cake can be uh, distinguished from the situation with the three anti-gay cakes. He, so he's disagreeing with both uh, Kagan's concurrence and Justice Ginsburg's dissent, which we'll, I'll get to in, in, a, in a few minutes. Now, he characterizes Phillips' refusal like this. He says, Mr. Phillips testified without contradiction that he would have refused to create a cake celebrating a same-sex marriage for any customer, regardless of his or her sexual orientation. And he says, all of the bakers explained without contradiction that they would not sell the requested cakes to anyone. And then he goes on to say, Justice cakes celebrating same-sex weddings are usually requested by persons of a particular sexual orientation. So too are cakes expressing religious opposition to same-sex weddings usually requested by persons of particular religious faiths. So, um, so he's saying that this is, these are very parallel situations because in each case, um, the, the, the baker is refusing to sell a cake with a particular message to anyone. Um, now he goes on to 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 address the the obvious argument, which is that the cake had issued in this case. Phillips had refused to make the cake when he learned that it was for a same-sex wedding, but before there was any discussion of the particular design of the cake at all. So the issue is the the argument uh, counter argument to uh, Gorsuch is is to say um, Phillips did not uh, did not refuse to make a uh, cake celebrating a same-sex marriage. He just refused to make a wedding cake. Period. Um, at all. So the fact that he would make a wedding cake with a particular, uh, just imagine a design that doesn't, um, inherently just on its face, uh, uh, reference or, or, or seem to connote a, a same sex wedding as opposed to a wedding generally, uh, that particular design he would be willing to create for a opposite sex marriage, but not for a same sex marriage. So that, that's the op- opposite counter. Now, um, Gorsuch kind of tries to, 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 counter this by saying, nor can anyone reasonably doubt that a wedding cake without words conveys a message. Words or not, and whatever the exact design, it celebrates a wedding, and if the wedding cake is made for a same-sex couple, it celebrates a same-sex wedding. Um, so that's kind of his his response there. Um, he, he, and he, he further makes the argument, now this is an interesting point, the majority decision by Justice Kennedy, it overturns the decision, it reverses the decision of the Colorado um, Court of Appeals. The Colorado Court of Appeals had upheld the decision of the the Civil Rights Commission, and they reversed that. So reversed that decision that upheld the Civil Rights Commission. Now they did not explicitly say what happens to this case when it goes back down to to the, to the lower court, and and it seems at least from the majority opinion, it seems open to argument that the commission could rehear this case and uh, and in theory um, come to the same decision just on on neutral um, bases that applied uh, across the board to. Uh, to um, 
uh, that didn't discriminate on the basis of religion or, or apply differential standards. Um, now, but Gorsuch in his concurrence specifically addresses this and says that basically the commission on remand when this case comes back down has no choice but to decide the case in line with the way it decided the anti-gay cake cases. They could theoretically announce a new standard for future cases, but this kind of, um, because it, you know, it was discriminating and treating him differently on the basis of religion, they can't go back and do the same thing again now when they already had that standard for the other three cases. So moving on, uh, Justice Thomas has a concurrence, and in this concurrence he's joined by Gorsuch. Now Gorsuch fully joined the majority opinion, but he also joins Thomas's separate concurrence, so uh, presumably that means that he believes that Thomas's concurrence is an equally valid way that, that this case should have been resolved, even though he's willing to go along with the majority as well. Now, Thomas, interestingly, he agrees with the majority that the commission did discriminate against Phillips, but he feels that the court should have decided the free speech claim. He says that expressive conduct is protected by the First Amendment. Free speech includes the right not to speak. And then he goes on to point to a history of wedding cakes as symbolic and ritualistic. They're instantly recognizable and they signify a wedding uh, the appearance and design of a cake uh, often takes priority uh, by a, a large margin over um, factors about taste. Um, and also that the expressive function of a wedding cake doesn't depend on writing or specific symbols. And, and furthermore, that the commission's order apply, applies, the commission's order to Jack Phillips, ordering him to, uh, to not discriminate, applies regardless of whether there is writing on those cakes. So even if there were specific uh, written phrases on those cakes, the commission would still um, uh, uh, require him to uh, to sell cakes, the uh, same cakes to same-sex couples they would sell to uh, opposite-sex couples. He addresses a few counter-arguments. Um, he says that that uh, he addresses the argument that that baking this cake would would not be viewed as expression by Phillips, but would just be viewed as compliance with the anti-discrimination law. And he he says that this would basically this argument could justify every type of compelled speech case that the court has ever had. Uh, for example, the, the, the kind of the, the, the seminal, uh, compelled speech case, the kind of the, one of the first major compelled speech cases, uh, that really established the doctrine was as a case called, um, Barnett, uh, that was about, uh, two school children in West Virginia, um, elementary school children who were expelled from school for refusing to, um, to salute the flag and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, and they did so because they were Jehovah's Witnesses and believed that this uh, uh, flag salute and, and uh, recitation was in violation of their religious uh, beliefs. But the court held purely on First Amendment grounds, uh, free speech grounds, I mean, that um, that this kind of compelled speech violated the First Amendment. They had rights of conscience to refuse to be forced to speak. Now, uh, Thomas basically says that, arguing that, well, you know, that, 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 uh, uh, the baking the cake isn't isn't his speech uh, wouldn't be viewed as his speech it would just be viewed as compliance with anti-discrimination law uh, that could be uh, applied just as well to Barnett to say that well the 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 words of the pledge of allegiance and the salute are not to be attributed to these children it's just the children complying with the law that requires them to uh, salute and and, uh, and recite he also um, addresses a counter argument that masterpiece uh, cake shop is a for-profit business and the argument that once you've entered into the commercial sphere um, then you, you have given up certain rights and he says that this is contrary to free speech law that you for profit enterprises don't forfeit their free speech rights. And, and furthermore points out that Masterpiece Cake Shop has shown a willingness to sacrifice profits, uh, for its religious convictions by refusing to make various types of cakes, not just same sex marriage, but other types of, uh, cakes that, uh, uh, that are count counter to Phillips's religious beliefs.
he also addresses an argument that um, that is a disclaimer would uh, would solve this problem. That Phillips could just uh, put a disclaimer that he uh, he does not endorse the uh, the views of uh, of the or the the parties that he makes cakes for, but argues again this would justify all types of com- compelled speech and and uh, cites language from previous courts. Uh, um, Decisions say, saying that that uh, the government can't compel someone to uh, to contradict themselves uh, by by saying something they don't believe, only to only to then express that they don't believe what they said. Um, and he he goes on. He doesn't he doesn't decide the separate issue of because even if there is a First Amendment right at issue here, there's uh, the possibility that there's a compelling government interest that could justify overriding that free speech right. He doesn't decide that particular question. Leaves that open. Um, but rejects one particular argument, the idea that the disapproval, uh, state disapproval of Phillips's speech, Phillips's, uh, uh, disapproval of same-sex weddings, the state's disapproval of that could be a justification for, um, for compelling his speech. And he says, quote, the quote here is, states cannot punish protected speech because some group finds it offensive, hurtful, stigmatic, unreasonable, or undignified. And, and, uh, and, and cites that as kind of a, a core um, free speech value. And so that brings us finally to Justice Ginsburg's dissent, um, joined by Justice Sotomayor. Now she distinguishes, uh, uh, kind of, uh, spends a lot of time distinguishing the, uh, the anti-gay cakes uh, that the commission, uh, um, allowed, uh, the cake shops to refuse from Phillips's wedding cake refusal. Um, and she points out her, her point is she says these cakes with the anti-gay messages, if you change the requester of that cake, so it wasn't a religious person requesting that cake, it was any other person, it was the exact same result. So therefore that does not represent, um, discrimination on the basis of religious identity. On the other hand, the Phillips case, changing the requester results in an entirely different re- result. Uh, instead of a, uh, a, a same-sex couple, a gay couple requesting this cake, it was a straight couple requesting the cake, then Phillips would presumably have been perfectly happy to make, uh, to go ahead and start designing and making a cake. So the refusal was based specifically on the identity of the person. She, she also disputes uh, the majority's characterization um, that the that the uh, commission's decision was based on findings of offensiveness. Um, she, she she says that uh, um, the, the the majority is basically overreading the uh, the statements of certain of the commissioners, and um, says that uh, the the offensiveness of uh, Phillips' action that the commission was concerned about was the fact that his discrimination was based solely on the identity of the purchaser. Um, and she also makes an argument that the statements of these commissioners, they're kind of insulated by the fact that there are other levels of review. There was an administrative law judge who made an initial determination before it went to the commission. There was a Colorado Court of Appeals who heard the case later and uh, and argued that those other um, levels of review uh, kind of insulated the if there was if there was bias shown by those particular commissioners. Um, so that, that kind of brings me to the end of these opinions and that kind of lays out the, the battle lines for, for future cases in this, in this area. And it kind of shows that, that, you know, at least, uh, to some degree, it looks like the more or less expected 5-4 lineup without these specific Colorado specific issues about, uh, Phillips's treatment by the Civil Rights Commission. Um, Kagan and Breyer might very well have been on the other side, um, uh, uh, siding against, um, uh, Phillips, um, though, though, you know, they, they, they don't say, they don't decide that in, in so many, uh, words, but, but leave, leave open, uh, 
specific uh, details and factual questions for later cases. Um, but it will remain to later cases to figure this out. And it's very possible that uh, other cases um, raising these, these kind of similar um, free expression versus uh, anti-discrimination law issues could make their way back up to the case in the very near future. On its private conference today, the court actually is considering one such case that involves a florist who uh, refused to create floral arrangements for a same-sex wedding. Um, and, you know, so there's a, a possibility the court could uh, elect to hear that case to um, to have another opportunity of, of deciding this particular question. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to some degree, it, it, this was a surprising way of deciding this case. Um, at oral argument, uh, Justice Kennedy spent uh, a bit of time dwelling on these particular issues of the bias of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Um, so it kind of telegraphed a little from there that that was where he was going on this. It wasn't clear that other justices would necessarily follow along with that. Um, but, uh, but he may have been the driver behind making that the, the main issue in this case, which again is, is, was not the way this case was primarily briefed or argued uh, the focus was on the the broader issue of these first amendment rights of free expression and uh compelled speech versus um anti-discrimination law um but uh, this the this and related issues will um will surely uh, uh come up to the court again in the near future now um i have had uh, one question in the uh, the live chat relating to this case um that, that i'll 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 take before i wrap up for tonight and it says how would you have voted in this case well I'm going to leave aside for a minute the question of the 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 way the court actually decided this case, the the, the uh, Civil Rights Commission's uh, alleged bias against um, Phillips. Uh, I, th- I think I think there's there's something to the majority's argument in there, but I would have to really dig into the record and really think about exactly the context of those comments and what they were saying. Um, so I'm going to leave that aside for now and 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 go to the more core questions the ones that the court kind of didn't really decide this time uh, and come back to them um my my uh general feeling in this case is 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 that i i think that the um the employment division v smith case that's the case which says that a uh neutral law of general applicability does not uh does not violate the free exercise clause um that is a controversial case. It's been controversial since it was first decided. That was actually a opinion written by Justice Scalia, and there was a lot of pushback by people from the left at the time because it was it was seen as something that would be harmful to uh, minority religions, um, uh, unusual or you know less uh, populous um, faiths, um, and so there was a lot of pushback from the left. Um, there's been a lot of uh, uh, pushback in the opposite direction from the, the right in recent years, saying that it's not protective enough, and there was earlier Free, free exercise jurisprudence from the court that was more protective and gave uh, greater protection to free exercise. I happen to be among those that think that the Smith line uh, case is actually a a um, a good standard. I, I, I think I think it affect it, it's a uh, um, strikes a a, a a a correct constitutional line. Um, and I think following from that Smith case, I would find that the free exercise uh, argument in this case. Is, uh, does not have any legs and and shouldn't um uh shouldn't be a winning issue. Now I do um I I do uh, uh accept the point in uh, Kennedy's majority opinion that there there is some line that needs to be drawn for example the example of a clergy member uh, that seems like uh, a clear uh violation of free exercise and and I'm not sure where exactly you draw that line but I think the line should be drawn pretty narrowly to to only allow minor exceptions to that general Smith line. Um 
And, uh, so that, but that brings me to the free speech, the compelled speech claim. I think that is actually a much stronger case. However, I'm not convinced that Phillips is on the right side of that line. And here's, here's the argument that I've made. And I've made, I think in previous, uh, um, uh, episodes of this podcast, I've made some of these arguments, but, um, leaving aside the cake for a moment, uh, it's, it's easy to come up with hypotheticals where the speech involved is much more expressive and it's clear that there's just, just a much more, some, some kind of, uh, core first amendment, um, uh, rights that are, that are implicated. And, and the example that I've used in the past is, is example. And this is, this is a real example of a, a business that really exists out in the world. There are, um, uh, individuals, uh, musicians who, um, uh, and you can, if you Google this, you can find, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of these, uh, examples of these, but musicians who write custom music, uh, for various occasions. Um, and one very popular, uh, type of music is custom songs for a wedding reception. And this would typically be used as the couple's first dance as, uh, you know, as a married couple, uh, coming out uh, onto the dance floor, being introduced as husband and wife or, or whatever the case is, um, at the particular, uh, wedding reception. And so the, the way these, these businesses often work is, is that a, uh, you know, an individual couple, whatever can, can, uh, can commission one of these uh, songwriters to create a original piece of music where they'll they'll talk with the the couple, learn about their lives, learn about you know how they met each other, learn specific things about them, and then go about crafting original music and original lyrics, putting together a song. Maybe this is an acoustic guitar song or whatever. And in some cases, if if they're in the geographic uh, location, they may even come to the wedding ceremony and perform the song live for the couple to come out and do their first dance. Now you can see that that, I mean, that's, that's very, uh, it's clearly, this is core kind of artistic expressions. It's original lyrics and music, um, you know, conveying a, a uh, narrative story and, and, and using music to uh, convey certain emotions. Um, the argument that the, and the argument on the other side, uh, the broadest argument uh, that was made by quite a few of the, um, opponents of Phillips, the supporters of the gay couple in this case, uh, it was a very frequently made argument was basically once you've entered into the commercial sphere, if you offer something to, to the public, you must offer it to everyone. And this even applies to custom, um, things that this was the argument that was made in, in response to, uh, to, uh, Phillips's cake. Uh, if you take that to the extreme, then, then that would mean in a case like that, um, someone could be forced, uh, you know, at, at the penalty of, of, uh, um, of basically uh, bankrupting fines and in some cases even criminal penalties in some in certain states that's not the case in Colorado but in certain states even criminal penalties but uh, uh, um, in Colorado actually in this particular case there weren't even fines involved there were just um, injunctive relief so orders uh, ordering Phillips to change his practices but in some cases there, and there have been fines in hundreds of thousands of dollars enough to to uh, to basically bankrupt a small business, but someone could be imposed fines or even criminal penalties for um, refusing to uh, compose original lyrics and music um, that con- uh, conveyed a uh, sentiment that the person uh, disagreed with, and even to perform um, uh, those uh, those uh, lyrics and words. And it seems to me that that you know that I use that as a, as a uh, extreme example, but but that it shows that there. I think um, applying this uh, non-discrimination rule um, without regard to uh, whether there's real expressive con- content there seems um, it seems seems to to really invade uh, the First Amendment uh, 
the, 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 the right against compelled speech. So the question here comes down to where do you draw the line when something is expressive enough? And, and I think, um, there is an argument that the wedding cake, uh, is expressive and, and some of that has been made. A wedding cake is instantly recognizable as symbolizing a wedding. It, uh, it, it, uh, um, it is used in a, in, a, in a, a ritual fashion as part of a wedding celebration. There's kind of standard ritual things where people gather around the bride and groom often uh, jointly cut the cake together and maybe feed a piece of cake to each other. It's kind of a, a ritual thing that symbolizes the new union. So there's a real expressive content to the wedding cake. Um, the question is whether, um, and this is, this is the issue that, that kind of was raised, uh, I thought, um, ineffectively in Gorsuch's opinion, um, that, uh, that just the fact that it's created for a same-sex wedding makes it a message about same-sex wedding. Now, I think there is something to that. And, um, the, the, uh, the argument that's been made on the other side that if you make something for one person, you have to make it for the other, that there's no difference. I think you can come up with examples where that's not the case. Um, just as Alito used one example, it's kind of a far-fetched hypothetical that he used in oral argument where he, he said uh, so a couple comes in and uh, a, a person comes in and wants a cake made that says uh, such and such a date, uh, gives it gives a date and says that's the, the, the greatest uh, date ever and says, oh, that's the date of my anniversary. Um, I, I want to uh, celebrate that. Someone else comes in and, and uh, asks for a cake with the exact same date on it saying such and such a date is the, the greatest date ever, um, but says, oh, I'm uh, celebrating that date because it's uh, the date of Kristallnacht, uh, basically uh, expressing support for uh, the Nazi persecution of the Jews, right? So it's the exact same expression, but the the uh, the the pur- purpose behind it is very different, and the person making the cake might very well um, feel that they're being forced to express a very different message in uh, cre- creating that cake and writing those words uh, on the cake. Um, they are conveying something very different in the different contexts, even though the words are exactly the same. I could use another example, which would be, um, suppose you had a, um, a, uh, uh, a, a devoutly religious person who agreed to make a cake for members of uh, his or her own congregation which uh, had words uh, for, for example, for some religious uh, uh, function, suppose it was uh, some sort of a confirmation type event or something like that. Um, and, uh, and suppose they crafted a cake with the, the words on it that said uh, um, in honor of the one true God. Uh, and then they're later commissioned by someone from a uh, completely different religious tradition um, asking to make a cake with those exact same words on it, saying uh, in, in honor of the one true God, but to be used at a, a ceremony associated with a completely different religion, which the cake maker regards to be um, completely anathema to uh, his or her own religious beliefs. Now, that statement uh, in that particular context by many devoutly religious people might be re- regarded as uh, kind of the highest form of, of blasphemy in direct um, violation of, of their core religious convictions, but it's the exact same words on the cake. So I think there is something to the idea that, um, that the identity of the, the kind of the, uh, the, the same cake may convey a different message. And so there's something to the idea that if the cake maker knows when he's making the cake that it's for a particular type of wedding, then it's conveying a particular message, um, related to that type of wedding. So, so I, th- I think there's, it's a real argument that should be taken seriously. But I think the counter argument there is that there is nothing 
uh, in the nature of the, the cake itself, assuming, let's assume it's a cake that has no obvious symbols related to same-sex wedding or any language on the cake that refers to a same-sex wedding or anything like that, you might argue that it's just not enough, uh, to argue, to, to, um, to show that, uh, that it's expressing a, a message that would be, that, 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 that relates to that type of wedding. And so the cake falls on the opposite side of the line of the unprotected side of the line where he should be forced to make that cake for every, everyone. I think, I, th- I think, I think it's actually a close case. I think you could make the argument either way. I think maybe it's on the wrong side of the line. I think, you know, again, a florist case, which is another type of case that may come up to the case where someone, the court refuses to make a floral arrangement. Uh, this is, you know, without having studied uh, floral arrangements in any detail, it seems to me that they are not um, distinctive enough to a wedding in particular that there would be particular meaning associated to a wedding uh, from a floral arrangement that, that, that it would fall on the right side of the line. Um, but, but again, I, I think, uh, you know, a wedding cake is somewhere near the edge. So I don't, I don't know if that fully answers the question. That's my general thoughts on that case. But again, this is an issue that will come back. We'll see how the court grapples with it more in the future. Uh, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, that brings me to the end of the live stream episode. Our next live stream will be a week from today. That's Thursday, June 14th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's our usual weekly live stream time, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern. You can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Next week's live stream, uh, well, the court had its private conference earlier today. An orders list from that conference will be issued Monday morning at 9.30. We'll see if we get any new cases granted for next term. Uh, according to the court's public information office, opinions are also expected Monday morning, as we we knew they would. Um, these will be issued at 10 a.m. on Monday. Um, no additional opinion days have been announced so far. Uh, so just the one opinion day next week, as far as we know right now. A reminder, again, we've got three weeks left, 25 cases still left to be decided, somewhere around, uh, you know, uh, seven to nine uh, major cases that are still outstanding. The court has to issue eight to nine cases per week um, to get these all out in the next three weeks. There's every expectation that they will. Um uh, the court's schedule from here on out is every Thursday. It has its private conference and issues orders on Monday. But based on the court's practice in recent years, there will almost certainly be additional opinion days added later in June. The court pretty much never issues more than five to six opinions at most in a single day. So they'll probably spread these out over more opinion days. But again, we don't know exactly when that'll be. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, given the large number of cases that are still outstanding and there's some real question about... Um, uh, about how the court is dealing with some of these cases. If the court, if we have a few more cases that where the court um, dodges the major issues and decides the case on some sort of narrower grounds, like like happened here in this masterpiece case. But again, we'll see when the opinions come down. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at countingtofive.com, on the Counting to Five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at Counting to Five or send an email to Mike at countingtofive.com. Uh, please subscribe to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. Thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.